0: I think it's worth understanding what what the purpose of a design persona is mm-hmm. and i think the the primary purpose for me is breathing life into what is often quite large amounts of complicated research data this
1: is aaron may
2: i'm john henry forster and this is awkward silence, silence. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to Awkward Silences, everybody. Today, we are here with Andy Budd. He is the co-founder and chairman of ClearLeft, and he spends a lot of time these days curating their conferences. Uh, He has a lot of experience in the UX industry, and we are very excited to have him here today to talk about personas, the good, the bad, the ugly, and especially the contextualized nuance around when to use them or not. So uh, thanks so much for being here with us, Andy.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: And J.H. is here as well.
0: Yeah, I think
2: I'm a big believer of context and nuance get lost in a lot of conversations, and it seems like Andy might feel similarly, so I'm excited to see where this goes.
1: So let's start with, so personas, uh, there's something that a lot of people use or familiar with somewhat, right, Um, across both UX, design, marketing, and other disciplines, Uh, and as happens on Twitter and the interwebs, uh, people like to knock on, on this tool, um, but you're arguing that that isn't always the best thing for the sort of discipline. So tell us a little bit about how you got to that perspective.
0: Yeah, I mean, I want to say for a start that I'm not necessarily a huge fan of personas either. Mm-hmm. You know, that they are a tool, much like a hammer or a chisel. And, you know, if I was a carpenter, I probably wouldn't be as a huge fan of a hammer as a chisel or well, because at the end of the day, it's what you do with them that counts. So I don't want your audience to think that I'm some kind of sort of persona fanboy or persona <laughs> apologist. You know, mm-hmm. I just see these things as tools and it's really useful to understand how to use things well, how to use things badly, and to understand when you should and you shouldn't use things. And I think weirdly, we get into these cycler conversations, where someone will make some broad statement saying that, you know, X is always bad and always terrible. Mm-hmm. And somebody else mm-hmm. will kind of come back saying X is always good. And mm-hmm. it just feels like sort of slightly kind of like school yard kind of arguments and it seems to be more about kind of the people having those conversations positioning themselves in the mind of an audience um rather than actually trying to kind of help educate people and and get to the bottom of when and and where you shouldn't use these tools i think personas for some reason get get a really bad reputation and i think the reason they get a really bad reputation is because people don't actually understand how they work generally in my experience a lot of people that are arguing against personas first off mix up Design personas with marketing personas, and that's really common. It, particularly if you're working in a more traditional business and you've got a big marketing team, and they've gone out and done a bunch of demographic um, research, and they've come back with a kind of a whole bunch of um, sort of marketing personas that are really intended to give the marketing team an understanding of, of of purchasing patterns and where those people consume media. And so you'll get these really sort of you know slightly you know. Fantastical personas that say, you know, this person's Mary and here's a picture and this is where they shop and this is their age and these are their interests, etc. etc. And I think to designers, these things can often feel quite hollow. Um mm-hmm. and you know, I, I I would agree that if you are a designer, inheriting and using a marketing persona can often be, you know, less than useful. But that's because they've not been designed with a design audience in mind, they've been designed with a bunch of marketers who are trying to figure out where they should place their ad spend or whether they should do it online, on this portal in this magazine, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the first sort of, you know, tool or tip or whatever is just make sure you're using the right things. If you if you're going to critique a, a tool like a persona, make sure that you're critiquing design personas and not marketing personas. And I think that's the first sort of common misstep that that people make.
1: So what is a good design persona if a marketing persona is sort of, you know, Mary Sue is 45 and has whatever degree and goes shopping at these places. What is uh, a, a good or an effective design persona look like?
0: Okay. Well, the first thing I think is worth understanding what, what the purpose of a design persona is. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the primary purpose for me is breathing life into what is often quite large amounts of complicated research data. So ideally, you'll have a research or a research team, they will have gone out, they would have interviewed a bunch of people, they maybe have you know, mixed up that sort of qualitative research with some quantitative research, and they've gone out and done a survey. And what they are ideally looking for are, I guess, behaviors what are the what are the problems these people are trying to solve how do they approach solving those and what are the scenarios in which they try and solve those problems and then because you've got a huge amount of data you could just dump that data in it in a very very long you know spreadsheet or word document or powerpoint file know to all the people involved in the um in the design process and expect them to kind of draw key insights from that document and that's perfectly you know perfectly possible and if you have a small research team you might not need to do that because you might have been involved in the research yourself however if the research is being done by a third party i think personas are a really good way of presenting one facet of the research now, again one of the other problems I think that, that that is maybe misattributed to personas themselves is this belief that it's the only way to kind of present or, or interrogate research mm-hmm. and if all of your research is boiled down into a persona and you don't have the extra data lying around then again these things might seem a little bit kind of sort of hollow mm-hmm. but if you see it as a facet or a as a as, as just one way of presenting complicated information and one of the things you tend to find is personas, um, you know, we're all built as humans to kind of, you know, understand stories. Storytelling is a unique part of our, our you know, I guess, the human kind of condition. And characters play an important part in stories. And so it's really, really quick for us to remember characters, to identify with them much, much more than it is to kind of remember what, you know, interview number 50 of 70. Um, And so personas are really kind of a shorthand for for the research, but built in a way that kind of, you know, creates some kind of sort of, you know, memorable um, character. The real value of the persona is in the scenarios and the sort of the behaviours and the... um, the, the, the sort of the research insights that are that are built within. So again, if you are given a persona and all it has is demographic information and nothing else, it's probably worth this and it's very much likely driven either by junior designers or maybe from marketing research. If you're looking at really good design personas, then they would they would, you know, outline the the the, the, the context in which decisions are being made, the kind of approaches that these different people might um Choose to solve those problems and the kind of the the um, the scenarios that they find themselves in, and it's those scenarios which are really helpful. Now, again, one of the one of the negative comments against personas is, "Oh, yes, but you know, um, you you know, humans are complicated, and people come from all different kinds of backgrounds and and have all different kinds of problems. And boiling these things down into archetypes, you're gonna you're gonna miss some, you know, some people or some groups or some some activities." And yes, that is true. But again, um, understanding the weaknesses of a tool allows you to kind of work around them. Um, And... The alternate to that is just seeing everybody as a as a as a homogenous user, mm-hmm. and I think this is the real challenge that personas are trying to address. In a lot of companies, there is no nuance around different kinds of users, and so you have these opinion battles around the table that the MD thinks our users behave like this, and often it's the way the MD behaves. And the finance director says, you know, um, I think they behave like this because that's how the finance director behaves. And the head of marketing says, and so you get these opinion battles, and so I think one of the benefits from having personas is it segments out what is often the case of one homogenous mass into slightly smaller probably still homogenous mm-hmm. but w- w- with slightly more nuance so i would prefer to have six or eight more subtle descriptions of a customer than one single one that is a- a- immutable and a- and so so messy and all-encompassing that it has almost no value
2: do To jump back for a second, uh, I feel like this is almost representative of why it's hard to have the nuanced debate, right? Like on Twitter, people love to jump in and say, personas are great, personas suck, and people take the polarizing sides. And that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. But Mm -hmm. when you actually start pulling back the layer on personas, like you just did for us, there's a lot of nuance there, right? There's a lot of context in terms of how you create them. Are we talking design or marketing personas? How are they used within the organization? And all of that. And is just like the richness, like it took us, you know, a handful of minutes just to get through that baseline. And is that what holds it back from being a more substantial discussion? Like, how do we get around the fact that it's kind of like there's this tip of the iceberg where you have the the name of the tool and then there's all of this meat kind of buried underneath that's hard to get into, you know, when you do have
0: these conversations? So first of all, I think we're in a time of rising popularism. And I think that's not only in the the design world, but in the political world as well. And I think... um, popularist arguments of this is always good or this is always bad actually generate a lot of heat and a lot of energy. And sometimes the people that are having these always good, always bad conversations, I think when you talk to them, you know, privately over a coffee or a pint or whatever, actually see the nuance. Um, but there's an element of wanting to sort of you know whip up some kind of further, maybe to raise their own profile, or maybe to sell their book or their consulting work, or their you know they're, they're looking for that you know that that you know attractive speaker slot, and they know that 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 being slightly contentious will get them there. And so I think we need to realize that there's a level of populism which maybe doesn't actually always reflect the the deeper beliefs of of the individuals that are having these conversations.
2: That's fair. I think the the optimist to me, I guess, is just that. The, like the more complex a topic or something is, I think the easier it lends itself to the shorter reductive positions. Whereas things that are simpler, like you mentioned tools uh, in the beginning, right? And something like a hammer is pretty simple, right? If I say uh, eight ounce hammers are no good and someone else is like, well, a 16 ounce hammer is better. Like we're talking about it with a little bit more nuance, but it's very simple to do. Or if I say something like, you know, using the tool in the wrong context of, this hammer like sucks at sweeping my floor, people are able to understand the concept really, the context of my usage really, really quickly and point out where it's maybe wrong. And it feels really hard to do that type of like additional layer of detail on more complex topics like personas or, or design tools.
0: I mean, I think, again, I think there's a few things going on here. So, you know, I'm not one that somebody who is sort of for having like a formal education or certification in the design industry. So I don't want to kind of jump onto that argument. But I do think that in some context, the barrier to entry to be a designer is relatively low. And I think a lot of people who have had exposure to personas, maybe have had exposure to bad personas, maybe are not aware of the differences between marketing personas and, and design personas or more frequently have learned personas by reading a couple of fairly lightweight articles and have quickly formed opinions about the validity of um this tool based on what is often relatively low information i'm sure you've kind of heard of this idea of the gunning the dunning kruger mm-hmm. curve this curve um is this idea that, like, you can get to a, a quite a high level of certainty about your own opinions with actually a very, very low amount of knowledge? And, and suddenly you get all these people that are that are novices at a thing, thinking they're amazing at something. But it's only over time, once you start learning about all the things you don't know, you actually realise that any mm-hmm. topic is much, much bigger. And that's when you kind of get the opposite of the dunning kruger effect with this kind mm-hmm. of sense of imposter syndrome. You know, you've been doing something for two or three years and you think you know everything. You've been doing it for 10 years mm-hmm. and you realise that actually you know nothing. The the other thing which I think is really interesting is ultimately, at the end of the day, a persona is like a postcard from your research, which is like the holiday. Mm. And so ultimately, you know, the, the the persona is a memory, you know, is an aid memoir of the experience you and your team had gathering the research, and it's a facet of that. And I think a lot of people look at look at the persona as a postcard and go, well, <laughs> I don't feel relaxed after looking at this postcard because they haven't gone on the holiday themselves. So I think sometimes you need to go on the holiday and once you've gone on the holiday and once you've absorbed all this information, the persona becomes a really, really useful shortcut for you in sparking those memories of that wonderful holiday or the insights that you yeah. gained from the research that you did. And so again, like, you know, just seeing a badly written persona online and going, oh, well, you know, that's completely useless is... Yeah, it's like expecting some you know, sense of relaxation from looking at somebody else's travel like photos.
1: You, you talk about personas as being valuable in an organization as a communication tool. And when you talk about the postcard, I think about that, you know, if I'm seeing this postcard and I wasn't part of the research, right, but I am someone within the organization who could benefit from this persona artifact Right. That came out of that research. How do you then make the persona, the postcard useful to people who maybe weren't super close to the process of developing it um, as a communication aid?
0: I mean, again, it's it's a great question. I think the answer is that different parts of the organization need different different levels of depth to understand the, the problem. And if you are the designer... You you probably are the one making most of the design decisions, and so you need to kind of have the tie from the persona to the insights and the research. Now, if you are the you know the, the the product manager, you maybe don't need to have gone on the research, but you probably need to have read the report and you need to understand how the persona relates to the report. If you are the 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 the, the kind of the owner of the business you know that you're dealing with as long as you have trust in the product owner and the the designers you probably only maybe need to consume the persona but you consume it by you know having the research presented to you and having the persona you know being the artifact but again i think personas can become problematic if the people who are um, inheriting them, don't have that um, that nuance of the research and are now making fundamental business decisions based on just the the, 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 the words written on that document. It's probably still going to be a better decision than, than having no no information at all. But again, this is why you have designers there to kind of like guide and craft you know the the, the conversation. So I think personas need to be owned. I think they need sort of you know someone to look after them and I don't think they're just kind of like wild animals that you let out into the organization to run wild and free and let everybody just do with them what they will because then that that kind of sort of nuance and that tie to the research Mm -hmm. sort of goes missing
2: all right a quick awkward interruption here it's fun to talk about user research but you know what's really fun is doing user research and we want to help you with that
1: we want to help you so much that we have created a special place. It's called userinterviews.com slash awkward for you to get your first three participants free.
2: We all know we should be talking to users more. So we have went ahead and removed as many barriers as possible. It's going to be easy. It's going to be quick. You're going to love it. So get over there and check it out.
1: And then when you're done with that, go on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review, please.
2: You mentioned uh, trust in there a couple times and it feels like that is always like the bedrock of if you don't have trust within the team, relying on somebody else to aggregate and summarize information for you is kind of like a non-starter. So it's um, like just I guess it's just always a factor in, the, in these dynamics across different stakeholders and different. Teams is to make sure that there is some baseline of trust, which is a whole, you know, whole other topic. um
0: I think so, and I think if you're having those kind of conversations with your team, and somebody says, you know, well, I think this user would, you know, this persona would work in this way or, or, or in another way, and and you disagree, it might be just because of the level of fidelity of the persona is too low, and it's then your responsibility to delve back into the data or the research and go, well, actually, you know. We found that that this is you know this is the reality of the situation. So again, personas are not the end of the conversation. I think they're the start of the conversation, and they're just a tool for having having better Mm. conversation.
2: What this is all reminding me of, there was um, a tweet from John Cutler the other day that said something like, "Company A does process X, and Company A is successful. Therefore, we should do you know process X." And his argument basically was, "It's not really that process that's what's making them successful. It's." the process they went through to discover that that was applicable to their business and helpful for their team. So it feels similar in this sense of if you see another company using personas and having success, and if you just try to blindly say, we're using personas now too, you're not necessarily going to have the same success unless you're also replicating, well, how are we creating those personas and how are we gathering the data and how are we tweaking them and iterating on them and how are we distributing that within the team? So the underlying stuff of how you actually use these things um, also feels super important and not just the headline of like, does your team use personas or not? It's really the next layer down of, well, how do you use them? How do you create them? And, and that's the stuff you want to be mimicking.
0: Fortunately, I don't think we're in a space at the moment where people are going, oh, look, company X has used personas and they're successful, mm-hmm. hence I'm going to use them. If anything, it's the opposite. I think we're seeing a huge amount of pushback where people are saying, oh, I, I fundamentally reject personas out of hand because I've had a few negative experiences with them and I haven't taken the time to really you know, read the books and the articles and, and what have you. And so I think what's happening is people are, are rejecting the use of a thing that might be beneficial. And that's not to say that it will be beneficial, you know, it's not, you know, it's, but it's to say that, like, why, why should we limit the tools that, that we have in our toolbox? Again, I, th- I think personas are kind of like the chisel of the, you know, of the, of the design, designer's toolbox, you know, it's not a thing you use every single day, you know, you might use a hammer every single day, you might use a saw every single day. But what we've got now is a lot of people that are trying to cut bits of wood with a chisel ending up with a horrible mess and probably lots of broken bones or cut fingers and going, well, that's useless. You know, personas are a waste of time. It's like, well, no, you know, you cut wood with a saw and you do something else with a chisel.
1: Personas are the chisel in the toolbox. You said, you know, they're not the hammer or the saw that you're using every day. What is the hammer and the saw? Um, again, like it, it was antithetical to the <laughs> spirit of this conversation to some extent, because obviously it's going to depend on what your context is and what kind of organization you're in, what your hammer and your saw is. But, um, with that being yeah. said, what are some hammers and saws out there that, um, uh, Absolutely. Well, well, again, I think there's,
0: I think there's something interesting around the sort of the slow maturation of our industry that i think maybe 10 years ago 15 years ago when we were sort of inventing this field all of these, you know, dozens and dozens of interesting tools blossomed. And if you sort of go back and look at sort of the conversations 15, 20 years ago, there was a much wider sort of you know proliferation of, of kind of tools. And I think that's been missing. And I think what's ended up happening is maybe due to the professionalization of industry, maybe due to commercial demands, we now are leaning on a, a small number of tools that have become crutches. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because these tools have become workhorses. I think the most obvious workhorse is the interactive prototype. And whether that's a, a simple prototype that you knock up in HTML and CSS or whether it's something you use, you know, um, a prototyping tool like Envision for, you know, that is kind of basically the tool that 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 almost no screen-based um, interaction design process would not use at some stage. Because basically what it allows you to do is it allows you to visualize your solution in a very, very quick, low fidelity way, do some kind of cognitive walkthrough to understand whether you've got all of the, the kind of bases covered, test it with users before you have to write a line of code, and kind of like prove your your, your concept. I mean, sticky notes and, and kind of like lightweight sketches are kind of the precursor to that, the kind of um, the, the storyboarding approach, which again, does pretty much the same thing, allows you to kind of understand step-by-step, process-by-process, screen-by-screen, or interface element by interface element, what's going on and how one thing leads to the next thing.
2: Awesome. You, 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 know, you use Twitter a lot. Do you have any ideas or advice of how, as like a design and user research community, we don't fall for the trap of you know somebody says something provocative that's thin and lacking context and everyone jumps on it and everyone responds and it becomes the topic of the day? Like Just a, two weekends ago, I think, there was the whole thing of everyone is a designer, everyone is not a designer, that seem to dominate my timeline for like three straight days. Like, how do we not, how do we not fall for that bait?
0: Um, well, I wish I knew because I fall for it at line and sinker every single time. And I was, I was also kind of like drawn into that kind of whole debate around everyone is a designer, everyone isn't a designer. I think it's a, it's, it's a challenge of the, the the nature of the medium. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, very, very short kind of like bits of, of text that, you know, that are designed to kind of um agitate agitate and and kind of sort of you know excite people um i just think you know what i tend to get what tends to annoy me on twitter is people people selling absolutes like i say this is always the case or this is never the case this is always bad or this is always good and we know that like particularly in the design world um it's usually never hundred percent good, hundred percent bad. Isn't it a promoter score a really weird and, and not great way of, of tracking, you know, um, tracking user sentiment around, you know, a positive customer experience? Yes, we all know that. The the, the calculations are weird and funky. Um, you know, I, I wish that there was a more commonly held sort of, you know, metric that, that other people used, but Do lots of companies use it? Yes. Do lots of MDs and CEOs put value in it? Yes. In that instance, should we wholeheartedly ignore it and throw the baby out with the bathwater? Or should we understand its weaknesses, but also understand its strengths? and try and downplay the weaknesses and enhance the strengths. And I think for me, you know, that that's all that I generally t- tend to be trying to do when I sort of wade into these debates. Unfortunately, I mm-hmm. think a lot of the time, individuals create a hill on which they want to die on. They've, they've staked their reputation over whether something is always good or always bad. And it's very, very difficult then to argue them down because it looks like you're you're backing down and nobody wants to sort of be seen to back down Um there are always new people coming into our industry. And I think it's really easy for those people to kind of hear a couple of really sort of powerful thought leaders saying that everything is always good or everything always bad and just just agree with it because it makes sense. And, you know, it's much, much harder to go and do the necessary research to find out for yourselves. And what I don't want Mm -hmm. to see is us limiting the choices that we have available to us. And so anytime someone says – don't use this. It's always bad. It always sort of like, you know, has a little warning sign, you know, warning clacks and go off in my mind. And, you know, you know, and I want to kind of get into the understanding of why they think it's good and isn't bad. And, and is it just because they're using it wrong? Or is it because they're in a context where it's not useful? And I think for me, this is the kind of the fundamental thing, which is don't, don't misattribute you finding no value into a thing, into the thing having no value so i think it's fine for you to say in my career i have never found personas useful or in my career i've always found net promoter score harmful or in my perspective everybody's a designer i think it gets really problematic when then when those individuals then extend that to everybody you know because then what you have is you have people that have found personas useful or have found net promoter score useful or do think that not everybody's a designer um, feel like they're being kind of sort of belittled or bullied around or that their opinions don't matter. And I think everyone's opinions do matter to a certain, you know, to, to a certain extent, you know, within, you know, objective reason and, and fact.
1: Uh, awesome. Andy, any <laughs> parting thoughts on personas or toolboxes or anything you want to get out there?
0: Um, only, only, you know, pretty much sort of going over the ground of what I've said, which is You know, tools are really useful. I think we are tool-using animals. I think designers need to have as many tools in the toolbox as possible. And there will be trends in tools. There will be fashions. And I think at the moment we're seeing, you know, some tools, you know, become less fashionable. Some become more fashionable. But I think to be a really great designer, what you need to do is become a master tool user and to do that, you need to use, as, you know, learn as many tools as possible and tools in the sense of, you know, like techniques like personas or, or, or you know, prototyping or, or what have you, you know, um, tree testing, et cetera, et cetera. But also kind of, you know, tools in the sense of, of products, you know, um, you know, I see a lot of designers that fixate on one prototyping tool. And that's fine if they're working in a particular company that uses that tool, but when they move companies, it can be really, really difficult if they move into an environment where that tool isn't being used. One of the great things I think you get from being a designer in an agency is you're often encouraged and maybe often even you know, needed to use a whole bunch of different tools. So I think it's worth having half a dozen different prototyping tools in your toolbox you know three or four animation tools you know a bunch of different tools for doing AI or, or testing or what have you and every job you do every new project you do find an opportunity to try out a new tool and add that to your list of, of success criteria when you finish the the sprint or the the epic or the you know the project you're doing because as designers we will only get better and we will only be able to have these nuanced conversations if we get better at understanding the strengths of The weaknesses. And if all we do is discuss the strengths or the weaknesses, and if everyone that hearing only hears the strengths or the weaknesses, they'll never get a chance to test these things out for themselves. And at the end of the day, I think it's much, much better for individuals to make their own decisions about how a tool can, can or can't be used rather than just sort of, you know, take it as gospel because some, some, you know, big persona or personality or, or what have you on medium or Twitter, or whatever said that this is the way things always should be. So make up your own minds by testing things out and trying and see what works for you. And again, it's almost like being an artist, you know, different people have different preferences. Some people might realise that they like a particular kind of pen or pencil or, or, or brush. Others might mean, you know, mm-hmm. realise they prefer something else like a palette knife. You just need to find the tools that work for you. But that doesn't mean that if somebody else is using a tool, it's a bad tool or they're stupid for using it.
2: Yeah, as an exercise, really, if there's a tool or a framework or process that you don't particularly like, just take five minutes and try to argue the other side of it. Like write down the potential strengths of that tool or the positives, right? And just like see if you can open up, maybe unblock your mind a little bit and see it from a different perspective.
1: Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews.
2: Theme music by Fragile Gang.
1: Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd.